Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday. I'm Tyler Brule. It's the morning after the night before Switzerland narrowly misses out and Italy blasts their way to victory at the joyous Eurovision Song Contest in Rotterdam. I'm very happy to say that our very own Fernando Augusto Pacheco is standing by in London for a final debrief. First words from you, Fernando. Good morning. Good morning, Tyler. Well, I thought the show was exciting. I mean, the televoting was nail-biting and I loved Italy's incredible red leather trousers as well much more on those trousers and the lace-up a little bit later. Also joining me around the mics this morning here at Dufostrasse, we've got Gillian Tobias and also Benno Zog. Benno, good morning to you as well. What's in the papers today? Good morning, Tyler. An interesting story caught my eye about the geopolitics of timber, surprisingly. As construction business is taking off, prices are skyrocketing and suppliers and and their customers are fighting. Canada and the US, China and Russia. So all of a sudden, very political in the construction business. Your summer hut is under threat. It sounds like our editor and editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, will bring us the view from that side of the channel. And we'll also have this from Hong Kong. I'm James Chambers in Hong Kong, and I'll be speaking a little later about Art Basel in Hong Kong and some of the latest news in Asia. James sounds like he's in a bit of a mountain hut as well. It's the 23rd of May, 2021, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. Well, good morning from a now um, sunny Zurich. Just before we went on air, there was a complete tropical downstorm, uh, downpour, I should say. Uh, but now the sun is out and I've also have some very fresh faced guests around the table, some familiar voices. Uh, I'm also happy to say, of course, you heard uh, Benno Zog, uh, of course, regular contributor, our security correspondent, uh, also a bit of a... No, I don't want to say an old hand, um, sort of a, a, young, a young hand uh, on the world of security policy uh, as well at Eteha here in Zurich. Good morning. You've got the papers open. Uh, we won't delve into them right away. How are we feeling this morning? Because we should probably disclose at the top of the program, <laughs> there will be Eurovision theme as we go through the program today. You were one of our guests uh, as well down the lake last night because we did have a Eurovision uh, party um, of, of some scale. We did indeed, and it was a great pleasure. It was entertaining as always, or even more entertaining as in previous years. I enjoyed that. It used to be a bit, in my teenage years, a bit of a tradition to watch it with friends and actually do bets as well, as we did last night. Even though I didn't won, my favourite came second. It was a great pleasure. And speaking of the day, this downpour that you mentioned, that was while I was riding my bicycle this morning. So I feel, unfortunately, refreshed <laughs> well, but not, not looking too soggy this morning, Jillian uh, Devias, uh, also here. Uh, this is, um, ladies and gentlemen, this is uh, a colleague who just keeps on giving. We said it's sort of the, the, the Swiss spring of Jillian Devias because you have been back to London, but uh, now you're one of the most regular voices around this microphone here. Well, it's feeling like uh, Switzerland is my second home, happily. And uh, um, every 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 time I come back to the mic, it's feeling more and more more natural uh, to be here and join you all. So, well, I'm I'm happy to say we're going to be talking a little bit later in the program. Another guest is going to be joining us, our Nolan Giles, our senior editor, uh, charged with, of course, uh, architecture, uh, urbanism, and design. He'll be here a little bit later. We'll be t- we're having a bit of a wrap up uh, on uh, Venice. Uh, of course, our listeners. Um, and our readers have been hearing a lot uh, from us from the Venice Biennale across uh, the week. But of course, uh, we also have to uh, get across uh, Eurovision uh, as well. And of course, it's got a bit of an Italian theme, as we know, because of course, everyone probably heard at the top of the program that um, Italy it did indeed um, win. Now, there was another Eurovision party, I believe, uh, over on the other side of the channel. Uh, Andrew Tuck was uh, in attendance. Good morning, Andrew. 
Good morning, Tyler. And, and, and commiserations to Switzerland. I know you carry the, the flag of that nation heavily this morning. <laughs> Listen, I think that you wouldn't believe the Swiss papers this morning. Very, very happy with third place in Switzerland, uh, Andrew. Uh, if, whether you look at the NZZ, uh, Blick, uh, it, it is it is all over the news. Of course, uh, they of course uh, Switzerland got uh, the the jury's vote. I think everyone sort of also realized at a certain point that they were not going to <laughs> to win it uh, when it came to the popular vote. Uh, tell me about your event last night uh, before we uh, before we get into the papers this morning. Well, we were with a small group of friends who uh, who certainly enjoyed it. I think I think we we I think we had a glass of wine from almost every single entrant. But so I was a little bit hazy this morning. But um, it was a very enjoyable evening. But I'm a disaster at these things because I, I I would never have guessed any of the, the 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 top three. I was convinced that Lithuania was going to win. Terrible song, but I thought it was bound to win. And oddly, it did get the the British popular vote. So it got the the twelve points from the the UK public. But I I thought Malta might win, but you know I'm I'm very bad at kind of guessing who's going to win. Well, we had uh, there was there was as of course Benno just said now there was um, I think quite sort of uh, he- heavy betting uh, you you could say uh, our COO um, Anna she was in charge uh, of course of, of money collection uh, we had a, a judge as well who was also there to of course verify um, all of the bets. Uh, and this is the amazing thing, Andrew. There was, um, it wasn't, I can't say it was a small party, but six people um, voted for Italy. So it was a bit unfortunate because then that, <laughs> that rather sort of significant pot had to be shared among six people. And it was a very significant pot. It was so nice to see piles <laughs> of cash <laughs> at the ready. Uh, Andrew, so you said you went for, for, for Lithuania um, and, and you didn't, you had no consideration, for, I mean, for... Listen, I, I voted for Italy as well, but I think also if you're a bit of an old Eurovision, you know, uh, hand and viewer, you sort of know that there there can be these these songs uh, which which creep up and and sometimes when something quite rocky uh, does come along, it's not my thing because I voted for Lithuania as well. I wanted Lithuania um, to win. I don't think sort of you know the discotheque song is, is all that bad. Uh, no, and it was it was very interesting this year. You know, the, you know, obviously there's the usual kind of politics at play. Although it was good to see the United Kingdom giving France twelve points, mm-hmm. uh, so that wasn't a kind of Brexit thing. But many of the papers here are claiming this morning it's, it's all a it's all a, a bit of a, a Brexit hangover that our European friends are so kind of peeved with us leaving that they they all kind of gang together and determined never to give us a point i think the song was fine but it's certainly not a eurovision song so i don't think anyone's that surprised this morning it didn't do very well and andrew the it's UK. not the first time britain has had new points so i think even I, pre-brexit I, I, it's had new before a british win so that i don't think anyone was that surprised so you do you do watch it with certain glee and we have uh, the t- the radio and tv presenter graham norton who runs a show here in the uk and I must say, he is entertaining to listen to, and he was uh, he was uh, wonderfully rude about every single person on stage. So that it, was, it was it was fun to watch as well. Well, no, I was going to say this. This was uh, we were tuned in to, to the BBC One feed uh, here in Switzerland uh, as well, because I don't know what it's like if you are watching uh, the state broadcaster in, in Croatia or if you're watching uh, this on, on ARD in Germany, uh, whether it's quite as fun as when you've got uh, Mr. Norton. But maybe just a very quick um, one minute uh, summary on this, because we're going to come back to the geopolitics uh, and the fine talents uh, a little bit later in the program. But uh, our, our one of our senior culture editors, Fernando 
Augusto Pacheco. We also say he runs the Eurovision desk is also with us in <laughs> London. Fernando, just a quick 90 seconds, your, your, your super fast assessment uh, on, on the awards last night. Listen, first of all, I have to say, I think the Dutch did an incredible job. I think the ceremony was quite fun to watch. I mean, it was quite a complicated one to do because of COVID. Uh, and Tyler, I love this new system of voting. When they, they released the televoting at the ending, so nail-biting. I was really, really kind of, I had no idea who was going to win. And you know what? Italy was definitely not one of my favorites, but there was something about it. There was a certain sexiness to it that I kind of, I, w- I was a convert in the end, I have to say. Yeah, and you, so you are thinking about, of course, laced-up trousers and, and maybe, um, yeah, a body filled with tattoos. Not quite filled with tattoos, but but maybe some, you could have a nice sort of statement in Portuguese across your chest or something. Exactly. I mean, th- th- that man had, had a little bit of a swagger, you know. I, I, I quite enjoy that, I have to say. Well, Fernando, we're going to uh, be talking uh, about, uh, of course, uh, Eurovision in greater detail uh, when we come out of the, the news a little bit uh, later in the program. But uh, maybe, uh, Andrew, I want to bring you in, but I'll start with Benno first because uh, Benno's got the papers uh, open. Uh, maybe just uh, bring us up to speed, Benno. What has uh, caught your eye this morning? <laughs> Apart from all the Eurovision um, accounting, indeed, um, there was one story that I quite liked because it's quite, quite interesting and in a way even combining the worlds of Monocle International Affairs and design um, and construction and so on. It is entitled in this week's Zeit. One title is In the Year of the Saw and the other one is All the World Wants Wood. Those are the two titles. It is about the surprising geopolitics of timber. Um, Wood we don't tend to think about but is indeed an internationally traded commodity and now that the pandemic is partially over, or at least um, um, businesses run it back and running again, and construction as well, prices of timber internationally have quadrupled, which threatens a number of prestige projects who actually want to use the sustainable um, means of construction. There's plans of a 350-meter-high skyscraper in Tokyo made almost entirely of wood. The problem is there's a shortage um, on global markets. It's part of a legacy of the financial crisis when lots of sawmills had to close down, um, but also part of, and that's where geopolitics comes in, trade disputes. Naturally, Canada is a major supplier to the United States of timber, um, but the two are arguing about potential subsidies in Canada to sawmills. So the United States under Trump had levied 24% um, import tariffs, which are now still at 9% on Canadian wood which meant that supplies were purchased from Germany, another big supplier, but there the US is competing with China as a big customer. Where does China get its wood from? Well, from Germany partially, but also naturally from the country with the biggest landmass and the most forests in the world, which is Russia. But Russia, in turn, the article argues, um, is trying to insource parts of the supply chains when it comes to timber because they're just exporting raw logs to China. Um, But that doesn't really generate any revenue in Russia itself. So from 2022, there's a Russian law banning the export of logs to China. So all of a sudden, politics meets construction business, meets this very quick um, recovery of the construction markets in the world after, well, after the pandemic, if you will.
It's it's a fascinating story, and uh, Jill and Andrew, I want to bring bring you in on this because uh, when you go to to the Biennale right now, uh, one of the really sort of the shining and sort of you know towering examples of this story is the U.S. Pavilion. So you've had this almost exoskeleton uh, built in front of the U.S. Pavilion um, at the Biennale, and it's this this wood frame structure, and the wood frame structure is really a commentary on on America. You know, fast building, uh, highly maneuverable. And and just sort of fascinating, sort of listening to to the curators about this, Andrew. Um, I wanted to maybe just to bring you in um, on on this topic because um, you've you've been to the Biennale. We're hoping that we get you out to the Biennale um, as well because it was amazing to see. So aside from the U.S. Pavilion this year, it, there was just. There was so much wood anyway. Um, but Finland, Andrew, didn't Finland? Uh, well, yeah, of course, you had the Nordic Pavilion, and then you, you had uh, the Filipino Pavilion, which was fantastic. You had this deconstruction of, of wood in many ways with the Japanese Pavilion. Uh, but Andrew, you have a bit of a, uh, maybe an unfashionable take on, on wood, that um, only wood is, is good. And this is sort of the narrative that we, we seem to, uh, to hear all, uh, all the time. But it was, it was interesting listening to, to the U.S., uh, some of the U.S. curators as well. They're talking about these, you know, these towers going up around the world, etc. So everyone thinks that wood is, is super sustainable. But once you start to, to laminate it, uh, you know, once you start to, to over-treat it, maybe it's, it's not becoming quite the same as concrete. Uh, but there's, there's, a, there's a little bit of nuance to constructing with wood as well. Yes, and I think that the, my concern is that often the timber, I'm sure not in the examples you'll, you'll see at the Biennale, but in many places, it's literally the wrapping that goes on a building. So internally, you're still highly dependent on concrete, you're still highly dependent on steel to ba- make the actual frame of the building, but then you kind of wrap it in timber. And somehow this always then appeases planning authorities. So if you say, I'm going to build the biggest timber tower ever, then planning authorities nod it through very quickly. But if you say, I'm going to build a huge concrete tower, then the, the, all of the, kind of the emotions that that word stirs stop something happening. And actually, you can make amazing buildings and sustainably from other materials other than wood. And I think also that you're beginning to see some rather shoddy buildings go up that are made from this this, this new type of timber, this new cross-laminated timber. So I, I'm not always convinced that it's a very successful thing. And when you look at what the, the other industries are doing, they are looking at how you 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 t- you, you make uh, carbon neutral steel. How how do you begin to produce concrete that has a longer life than the building it just goes into? So most concrete companies are now looking at how you regrind concrete at the, when a building comes down, put it back into into the whole building supply chain. But and it is fascinating because here in the UK, oddly, there's a story this morning saying that there's a brick shortage in the UK. So there's bricks screws and hinges are all in short supply because of the the, the building boom that's taking off uh, a difficulty of uh, supply and again as benno was saying a problem getting stuff in from from the likes of china as well just benno very quickly in that story does it does it point to um, any any winners in all of this because also there are some mid-level players I maybe mean, talk about germany for example but then of course you have the likes of of poland of course with you know a serious timber industry as well doesn't really even point to the nordics you have uh, of course finland right now completely trying to rethink their timber economy um, how they can be savvier and faster or are they really only focusing on let's say the big superpower <laughs> players in this there's a bit of a focus on these and Germany in particular because it's a German newspaper, but 
between the lines there are some winners which is for example Germany having more flexibility when it comes to its customers but naturally generally speaking countries with a lot of forest and and wood supplies but the biggest winner indeed may be a big player Russia um, if you think about Siberia or the Trans-Siberian Railway for example what do you imagine endless forests but at the same time there's very little um, share of the value chain in these regions when it comes to sawmills um, and so on and construction as well. So in the long run, um, Russia is one of the beneficiaries even of climate change because um, they will gain more arable lands and it will be more easy um, to gain access to resources. Russia indeed may be the big winner if they play their cards right. And when it comes to sustainability, for example, or um, non-corrupt trade practices, Russia probably isn't, hasn't been the winner in past decades. So it's a bit, bit of a challenge, but there's huge potential in these forests in the north, whether that's in Siberia or Finland um, and so on. If wood stays this sought-after material and is actually properly used, not just in the ways that that Andrew Tuck mentioned earlier. And Andrew, just uh, can we look at the um, the UK papers uh, this morning? I've only caught the Sunday Times, of course. Uh, much of the paper leading aside from uh, their hot-selling annual rich list, uh, which is out today, uh, but also, of course. Yeah, the the storm that is um, surrounding the BBC off the back, of course, uh, the Martin Bashir interview uh, with, uh, with with Princess Diana. Is that uh, what we're seeing on, on most of the covers this morning in the UK? Yes, it's incredible how the royal family continues to dominate uh, all our newspapers every weekend at the moment. So there's, there's of course, during the week, the, the, the trailers for uh, uh, the Oprah um, uh, TV series made with Prince Harry, then this so-called truth bomb that he's dropped on the royal family saying that he didn't want to kind of repeat the mistakes that his father made or the, the way that his father was badly brought up, i.e. reflecting on the, the ability of the queen as a, a mother. So that has gone down badly. And then it, it all segues into this, this other story about Martin Bashir and how he originally got that interview with Princess Diana. Now... We have to be careful here because, you know, Martin Bashir, he seems to have been incredibly devious and uh, and probably did tell some porky pies to uh, Earl Spencer to persuade his sister to give this interview. But Princess Diana, even this report that's been done by Lord Dyson, not the, the Dyson of the, the, the vacuuming world, but another Lord Dyson, points out that she would have given this interview anyway at some point to someone. She wanted to do it. And even after the interview, you know, she was very pleased that she had done it. She felt that she had told her truth. And we're in this odd moment now where there are many people saying that this interview should never, ever be shown again. And I'm, I'm, I'm a bit wary of it. It feels to me like it's a silencing of her. You know, she knew what she was doing. She, she wasn't, uh, yes, she had troubles. Yes, she was a complicated woman. But when she gave that interview, she did also know what she was doing. So, yes, Martin Bashir, a, a difficult, complicated man who should have not been allowed to continue his career at the BBC, probably. But on the other hand, it, that interview would have happened. And we, and we can't claim that every single piece of history that followed and her death and, and the reduction of security around her and the failure of, of the, the marriage to, to Prince Charles is all down to that one thing. It's far more complicated than that.
And Andrew, just to, on on how this uh, this plays out, because already we've seen um, a bit of well, maneuvering uh, at on at, at a board level. Uh, certainly, some of the people who would have been on watch at that time or or, or shortly after. Uh, does the BBC put a lid on this uh, quite quite quickly? Because of course, one could argue that much of the current management um, was not on their watch. Uh, or do you think that we there is the sense that there needs to be news newsroom reform, or or did that probably happen? already not just off the back of this story but just be, you know because of the the ever-changing face of, of the news cycle well again tyra it's incredibly muddy because the, the the issue here is that on the right if you're for example you know, a writer on the daily telegraph or you're a tory mp you despise the bbc it's it's seen as being you know propped up by the state but spouting left-wing views. So all of these people are are just delighted to see the BBC squirming and in such a difficult position. And they're saying, look, the BBC's journalism is rotten to the core. It can't be relied upon to police itself. It covered up uh, truths in the past. It's not fit for purpose. And there are many on the right who would just love to kind of, you know, uh, turn the BBC to be an, another sky, for example, and take take advertising, and they they want it gone. So there is talk here about putting an, another editorial board to oversee the BBC. What has to happen, really, though, is internal reform and a sense of clarity of mission. I don't think that most journalists at the BBC would would use uh, Martin Bashir's techniques, and I think today probably none of them. There are many great journalists at the BBC. But this is this is not just about Martin Bashir. This is about the future of the BBC, its politics, and how those in government perceive it to be on the left. And, and this comes off the back of, of course, something which has um, you know, been bubbling for a while. Maybe some of our listeners um, around the world wouldn't be across to this because it's quite a it's quite a domestic story. Uh, but we we could be you know, days, maybe weeks. Uh, let's see what the official official launch date is of of GB News, uh, which you know, is you know. Some are sort of labeling it. This will be the fox of of British of British news. Um, it is certainly going to to skew more to to the right. Uh, they they're you know also talking about how they want to programs like woke watch uh, etc. Et uh, and this, this completely sort of plays into the hands of such a venture, which will also be very clearly uh, a commercial venture as well. Well, yes, this is the the, the the TV station that's going to be brought to us by Andrew Neil, the former editor of the Sunday Times, you know, a, a great political TV interviewer, and who has left the BBC and he's he's setting up his own station now. Again, if you read the the right wing press, you you would imagine he'd, he he's already kind of won the game. They're so going to out to support him and and give him their backing. We'll have to see what it looks like. We we you know, that, it's a lot of time to fill and it's not Andrew Neil only going to be on, on screen so yeah, I don't know we'll, we'll just have to wait and see but what is true is you know that the BBC again is, is in this weird position because it has this this remit to always be impartial so it has to kind of if it says one thing it's supposed to find somebody to say exactly the opposite so you, you sometimes get very cumbersome kind of coverage of of topics where you'd think there'd just be some clarity and common sense it's it's lashed itself very closely to this kind of woke agenda and you know many ways good you know it, it is trying to make sure that there's you know there's a chance for everybody to appear on screen and that it's doing its best by recruitment 
but it does seem to get itself caught up in in very difficult tangles every now and then and you you see people saying you know i'm i'm on air talent and i find it difficult to do these interviews and and tell the truth and and say what i think without fear of being told off for for saying the wrong thing um, and I just want to bring in um, for, uh, Fernando Augusto Pacheco um, in, in London. Uh, Fernando, just uh, you've been also looking at the papers uh, as well, um, at least in the, the Lusophone uh, world. Uh, something from Brazil or something from Portugal? Uh, I have something from Brazil, actually. A picture that is on the front page of all the dailies at Folha de São Paulo, Globo. A picture that actually made me happy. Basically, was uh, the amicable meeting of two of our former presidents, uh, Lula and Fernando Henrique Cardoso. You know, Tyler, they were rivals. I mean, they were both both uh, president for two terms each. You know, they had different policies. One is from the centre-right, one is from the centre-left. But they've met because uh, I think that was a way of Fernando Henrique and Lula saying, you know, that they clearly are not supporting the current government of Jair Bolsonaro and they want to bring kind of uh, back the civility that we used to have in Brazilian politics in a way. I mean, there were a lot of infighting, a lot of political differences, but not to the stage that we have now. And it's interesting to see that the, the Brazilian press, I mean, is covering that, you know, the, the kind of the, the, the right-wing ones, the left-wing ones, and they, they're kind of, you know, seeing this as a positive thing, uh, you know, to, to end up uh, polarization and, and everything. But, you know, we have to wait and see. I mean, Jair Bolsonaro can also use that um, as a political play, saying, look, they're back together. You know, I'm the only one that can be different. Uh, so I think that was quite a nice story uh, from the Brazilian papers today. Fernando uh, and uh, Andrew will have more from both of you a little bit later in the program. Before we stay in London or head back to London from, from Zurich for the news. Uh, Gillian, uh, you've got the FT, I think it's the FT, open there and you've, uh, you've got a story for us. Yeah, I was interested that uh, trouble at the Vatican, I mean, this year has certainly thrown up problems in the workplace on a corporate level uh, for small entrepreneurial companies. How do they uh, cope with employees? And um, interestingly enough, the Vatican has seen uh, a decrease in income. So the Pope decreed that there had to be a 10% pay cut for cardinals, 3% for other workers. And now there have been letters to the Vatican saying morale is low and this is not the way to treat employees. And I think it's interesting that at every level this year has made uh, organizations have to rethink how they do business, how they stay afloat and how they, they deal with their employees. So companies large and small take comfort. It's happening at the very top does it call the Swiss Guard in as well? Uh, the they Swiss, will, uh, I'm sure. The Swiss Guard getting <laughs> something that looks like a pay cut. Exactly. Um, coming up, we're going to be talking to our James Chambers, also our Nolan Giles has just arrived uh, with copies of our special Biennale uh, newspaper. We'll be talking uh, about that. And of course, uh, we'll be going back to Fernando with more on Eurovision. But first, back to London, Emma Nelson's Earth News. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. International mediators have attempted to reinforce the ceasefire between Israel and Palestinian militants after 11 days of fighting. The owner of a container ship that blocked the Suez Canal in March finds out a little later today if it will be liable to pay $900 million in compensation to the Canal Authority. And it was a triumph for Italy and heartbreak for France, Switzerland and the UK as rockers Monoskin blasted their way to victory in last night's Eurovision Song Contest. While Switzerland got the jury's vote and the French entry came a close second, the UK's entry from a young man called James scored nul point. And those are the headlines. Back to you, Tyler, in Zurich.
Emma, I have to ask, uh, was, was, there, was there a viewing of this event uh, in, in the Nelson household last night? Yes, there was. Uh, the, um, we forgot about it until quarter past nine and then suddenly played furious catch-up. But it didn't matter because all the, all the ones that were important were all, were all in the latter half of it. Um, the one thing that we were absolutely flabbergasted about was just the level of care and love that the, that the good entries actually devoted. You know, Iceland, um, you know, Italy, France, they really thought through. And yet we saw the British entry and I remember my husband just going, I thought that's the engineer. They're waiting for the real one to come on. (laughs) (laughs) This... uh it, it was something about those the two. I don't know whether they were um, were they trumpets. I think they were trumpets mm-hmm. on the side. I wasn't quite sure sort of who was in charge of of, of the set design, but it, it didn't sort of really uh, match also with uh, that sort of that zipped outfit that he was wearing that looked like a sort of a bunch of shredded tires um, that were somehow <laughs> sort of bound together by zippers or something. Tyler, I think so. you're being generous. It could be. Fernando will not be googling no, that. No, I'm going to stay with this uh, for for a moment. Uh, but but Fernando, let's 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 talk about the evening because this was, of course, uh, this was a year where uh, we we had was paused. Of course, Rotterdam was uh, the Netherlands was supposed to host it. You said you did one of the interesting things just in in terms of your headline analysis was the fantastic job that uh, that uh, that the Netherlands um, state broadcasters um, did uh, around this. Uh, it was a very pacey very slick, very well-produced event, because we've seen many years, you know, quite recently as well, where, where things can get a little bit you know, draggy and baggy as you're, as you're viewing. Absolutely. And Tyler, they knew, you know, because of COVID, you know, unexpected things could happen. So, the, you know, for example, the Icelandic entry, they didn't perform live. But to be honest, if you were not reading the paper, you wouldn't, you know, believe in that, because basically they played a pre-recorded version of that. And they did, they did that with every single artist in case someone catch COVID or in case something happens and he couldn't perform. So I thought it was quite pacey and I, and I really enjoyed even that kind of midway where they, I think they invited, uh, you know, the Dutch DJ Afrojack and a few other singers. I think it was quite nice. It looked expensive. It looked it was it was a really good TV show to watch, actually. Okay, so here's what's interesting. I want to uh, maybe get your view on it, but uh, we'll open it up to to, to Gillian. Uh, Nolan's here as well, of course, as the Australian, the uh, the odd nation uh, that somehow got invited uh, some years ago into the Eurovision family, which has people always sort of scratching its its head. But Gillian, well, Fernando, I'll start with you. Did you find it was interesting as well that this was you know a, a year where we saw you know the top three songs, none of them were were English language because of course there's been this trend over the past decade decades where a lot of countries have been performing in English. Uh, and, and, and here you have, of course, you know, the winning song from Italy, you know, as we said, very rocky, and maybe we should have a little bit of a, a listen to it um, in, in a moment. Why, why don't we actually start from the, from the bottom three? Because it, but let's say we've got France as well. And then, of course, we have, uh, we have Switzerland, too, uh, also, also in, um, in French um, as, as well. But maybe set them up. Why don't we, why don't we just focus on, on the top three? But maybe we'll start with Switzerland. Absolutely. And first of all, Tyler, I think it's, it's so nice that the song the top three were songs that were not in English as well. I think that shows that you can still sing in your own language and win, as it happened with Portugal, with Serbia uh, years before as well. And I think the public, even if you're from a different country, they like this kind of, this unique uh, vibes. And that's what Italy showed us. But yes, I mean, let's have a listen uh, of the Swiss uh, clip of Guillaume's Tears. Uh, Let's have a listen now. Je 
listen it's not my type of music but i have to say the staging was good the staging was good you know i kind of i, I think it's quite admirable but deep in my heart i gotta be honest i think if switzerland is going to win it needs to be like with a luca honey vibe do you know what i mean not with with Gion's tears in a way uh, but yeah very respectable come on third place that's not bad it was good and i think it was uh, and uh, it was it was amazing because they they were i mean well ahead because of course as, as we were saying and people who know eurovision there's the, the let's say the jury vote uh of course, the, the professionals voting, and then of course you have the, the public vote as well. So yeah, there was a moment where Switzerland was 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 way out um, in head. I, I have to say, I, I disagree. I mean, there was that that sort of that that top he was wearing with the, the jumbo collar. I mean, he would have taken off in some of the high winds we've had in here in Switzerland recently. Um, I was not and, googling that either. I have to no, say, Tyler. and then also, and, and, and maybe, and 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 there was there's a lot of also volume with uh, with with the with the hair as well. Yeah, I, I think that probably if Switzerland's going to maybe turn it around, but listen, I guess it was technically it was a very good song, incredible singer, but maybe not not the best direction. Gillian, you've got something to say on well, this. Well, it was interesting listening to uh, the song just now, closing my eyes. I think actually listening to it, the song is much better, but I think Switzerland let itself down with, I just thought, just uh, disappointing production values and styling. And so many concerts have been shut down for a year. This was their moment to get the best stylists, the best production designers. And wow, Europe. And I think it was such a lost opportunity because actually just listening there to the song, you know, maybe it could have could have won with phenomenal styling of clothes, hair and staging, I think. Let's we sure get the, the, the Swiss opinion on this. We can't just be commenting from the outside. Uh, Benno, would you like to speak on behalf of your country this morning? <laughs> I fully agree with Gillian now listening to it. It's a strong song. It's a strong voice. But the, the visuals were... <laughs> Not <laughs> ideal, let's call it that. But we used to Switzerland zero point. We've had that in, in previous years. So this is quite the success indeed. And I like what you said earlier about countries singing in their own language, in a national language, is actually en vogue again. I still remember Eurovision Song Contest to be Concours Eurovision de la Chanson. And now we have this Swiss contribution and the second um, ranked, the French contribution, Voila, which is also in this like classical Eurovision tradition. I was quite fond of that. Fernando, let's uh, maybe uh, your take uh, on uh, France's uh, entry as well. Uh, Barbara Pravi, uh, again, uh, we had uh, a, a very sort of passionate French national um, in the living room uh, l last night. Uh, I think there wasn't a, a dry eye uh, when she was performing. But again, you know, also, I think a lot of people thought this was good. It was technically a very good song, but also it was just very it was stripped back uh, in, in a very different way. And that's actually something else about those top three songs as well. I mean, there were you know, no major backing dancers, no big choreographed numbers for, for all, all three of them. Because sometimes you don't need them. And I think Barbara Pravi, again, again, she did a great job. If I had to choose a ballad between France and Switzerland, I would pick France. You know, she has all this kind of the Edith Piaf vibes as well. And I, and again, I mean, talking about styling, I mean, I do agree about Guillaume Tears, but again, the simplicity of her clothes, I think it works. And even the work she did with the camera, I think that was quite efficient. And I could feel connecting, you know, to people at home. Uh, I think she did well both with the jury and with the televoting as well. We have a clip as well of Barbara. Let's have a listen. Regardez-moi Avant que je me déteste Quoi vous dire Que les lèvres d'une autre Ne vous diront pas C'est peu de choses Mais moi, tout ce que j'ai Je le dépose là Voilà Voilà, voilà 
mean, you can't really go too wrong with that, I think. But it's 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 a good song. No, it does exactly what it says exactly. uh, on, on the label as well. Uh, Nolan Giles, uh, of course, you maybe didn't grow up in quite the same way with many people around here with Eurovision, but of course your country's there. Uh, but you didn't make the qual- you didn't make the finals uh, where Australia has done so um, mm-hmm. in other years. Uh, so um, you didn't make it through. Uh, but just uh, your your observation, maybe also from a design point of view, uh, set design direction, uh, h- how you observe this. Uh, uh, last night. Well, it's interesting. I mean, that's that song is very kind of Edith Piaf. It's super beautiful, like a building ballad. It's not what I conventionally think is a Eurovision track. You know, it's got something very you know different to it. And it's the same for the Italian song. You know, broadening of the palette, like an epic rock track. So it's lovely to see that. But then also, as Gillian was saying before, you know. When you hear the songs and you don't have the visuals, it's almost like a completely different experience. You're so entranced by what's going on there. And I, ne- I, hadn't, I hadn't watched it for a couple of years and I was am- absolutely amazed by the production values. Mm-hmm. And also the choreography. I mean, I can't remember the, the entrance where they had the keyboards and they all wrapped around each other in this circle of, of oh, keys. Oh, Iceland. Play. Yeah. Yeah. Iceland. I mean, that was, that was a highlight <laughs> for me. If you're talking about a design moment, like, that had to be it. Yeah, no, I mean, it, it's a shame. I mean, it, it, that was, sort of, I think, a classic Eurovision uh, moment. But somehow, for an didn't, it didn't resonate. It was interesting. All of those classic uh, you know, numbers that you would think, they didn't cut through. And yet, if we go to Italy right now, it, it, it's a rocky song. Um, and of course, we have seen, everyone I think will think back to to Finland and, and, and Lordi and those those um, those monsters on, on stage um, doing their sort of serious heavy metal. This was, of course, was in a much more, you know, romantic moment. Um, but it was, you know, it was sexy. There was skin, as we were saying at the top of the show. There was a lot of eyeliner. Uh, <laughs> And, um, you know, in many ways, it was um, that, that stripped back nature was maybe something that people were looking for right now. No, and, and, and you know, it's a very different uh, song from the Lordy one, because the Lordy one, I was listening back again the other day, and it's so camp, actually. It feels almost like a very kind of era pop going a little bit heavy metal. But I think, you know, Ziti and Boini by Maneskin, it felt like a proper kind of uh, rock track. And again, their visuals, it was amazing. And Tyler, again, at the beginning, I was not a fan of the song, if you ask me like a month ago but I completely changed my allegiances when I was watching uh, the show and I love that he plays this kind of rock and roll star vibes at the press conference I mean he was drinking champagne and he was looking kind of a bit bored but he was quite chic actually in my opinion Uh, I mean shall we have a listen actually to Ziti Buoni Absolutely. Guardo in alto tipo scalatori quindi scusa mamma se sono sempre fuori ma sono fuori di testa ma diverso da loro e tu sei fuori di Me piace, me piace, I like it, I think. <laughs> <laughs> but this is the thing, right? This, this happens some years, Fernando, that you have these songs. Because this was this was made for stage. Uh, yes. And there's that moment, which is a little bit Rocky Horror as well. You know, uh, Buenos Aires, Senora, Senori, he walks out. It's 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 got real presence. It's also a little bit camp as well, you you, ha- you have to admit. But uh, there, is, there is, I think you maybe used the word a little bit earlier, there is some swagger to that song. But I don't think it's going to be one of the chart, <laughs> the chart toppers that comes out of this uh, festival but definitely made for stage yeah and, and it's interesting you mentioned the chart toppers because sometimes the songs that don't win they're the ones who do better in the charts I mean remember Mahmoud with so- Saudi I mean it, it was I think it was the second overall but they did so well in the charts I mean it was such an amazing platform uh, for him to launch so I mean you know all the people in the top 10 of course Dadi Gagnamanu from Iceland I mean people love him I mean of course he would do well I know he's got some shows booked here in London for next year right 
already. So, you know, it doesn't matter if you don't win. I mean, I think, you know, if you're in this top 10, you will be very happy. Okay, so let's uh, let's fast forward a year out from now. Um, it would be it would be good. Why don't we just do a quick poll? Because you know this is one of the interesting things. You know, people would often sort of think, okay, if you're going to do the uh, the Eurovision um, in the Netherlands, you would think that of course uh, it would be in um, Amsterdam or maybe out in Hilversum, where all of the broadcasters are, are based. But there they were in Rotterdam. I'll start with you, Fernando. Uh, is it going to be in San Remo? Is it going to be uh, in Milan? Uh, will they go? You know, deep. South? Will it be in Palermo? What, what are you thinking? Listen, I might be a bit obvious here, but I was talking to our co-editor Chiara Di Mele and I said Rome because apparently Maneskin, they are from Rome, you know, so I think it would be quite special uh, if he was in the city. But to be fair, Tyler, anywhere in Italy, I'm very happy to go next year, you know, I, I to go for the event. I, I was going to say, so because uh, uh, you'll be the one uh, who'll be there for us uh, next year. Uh, we are going to head to Hong Kong in a moment. Um, Fernando, stay with us until the end of the program. It's uh, just uh, 10.44 here in Zurich. Uh, Off for a short break. Hong Kong next. The Entrepreneurs is Monocle 24's 30-minute weekly conversation with inspiring business leaders from around the world, uncovering the secrets of resiliency and growing a company and the many definitions of success. Now we're craving curation in a very different way and have understood how small businesses have given complete life to our streets and communities. And I think we'll value them in a completely different way, which I'm excited about. I think in your standard entrepreneurial journey, there's a lot of times when you might want to throw in the towel. But if impact is really at the heart of what you do, you don't have that option. You have to stick to your guns. Join me, Daniel Bage, for a new episode of The Entrepreneurs every Wednesday at 2000 London time right here on Monocle 24. You're back with Monocle on Sunday with me, at Tyler Brule. Just at 10.45 here in Zurich, you'll hear uh, the, the crinkling and crunching of newspapers in the background. Uh, our special edition uh, newspaper, they're back, ladies and gentlemen. People have been missing our, our newspapers. Uh, it has returned uh, with a very, very special edition from the Venice uh, Biennale. We'll be talking a little bit about that in a moment. But uh, time to head to Hong Kong right now. Our bureau chief there, James Chambers, uh, joins us. Good afternoon, James. Morning, Tyler. Got a question for you straight off the bat as well. Why has there never been a, an Asia Vision contest? You know how this uh, region is so crazy about singing. It, it makes me think why uh, that the idea hasn't been exported out here. No, it's it's a, it's it's a it's a very good question. I sort of I wonder why. Uh, yeah, as as you said, uh, given uh, the popularity of, of karaoke, given the the popularity of all of these sort of big set piece competition programs that uh, you know the Japanese are very good at, the Koreans are very good at as well. Um, yeah, may, maybe there's a, there's sort of a, a submission uh, for you, uh, James, that you could uh, be acting on behalf of the European Broadcasting Union um, and seeing if you could set up a licensing deal. But I think I think it could be very um, very exciting. And, and as, as you know, I mean, it gets so uh, there, there's so much, you know, happening in the background geopolitically with Eurovision. It would be amazing to see um, how, how spicy that could get in Asia as well. <laughs> James, well, maybe just, uh, you know, listen. sorry, why, why don't we, uh, we start with uh, what's um, what's making news either uh, within the, the, the territory of Hong Kong or uh, a little further north or, or, or further uh, east or south? Well, you, you know, you guys have been having the architecture down in Venice and, and the singing in, uh, in the Netherlands. Here in Hong Kong, it's all about, been about contemporary art and 
and the Art Basel Hong Kong Fair, which has been going on for the last few days here. Um, it's obviously the, the first one that we've had in a while. The first full one was back in 2019. So, um, you know, people have been making a huge effort. Uh, I've been you know, at the fair for you know, most of the second half of last week. And, and uh, uh, even though the outfits on display probably can't compete with what was seen last night on stage, it did seem like people were making it a big effort uh, and everyone was very excited to be, you know, be able to meet in person to a- attend uh, a big fair like this and to actually, you know, spend money. A lot of the galleries were reporting a very strong fair. So that's all very good. We will stay on a bit of uh, a design uh, and architecture and cultural theme, uh, because as we were saying, just going into this, we, uh, of course, our newspapers uh, have, have just uh, arrived uh, and we uh, are sort of surveying the, the front page um, right now. And I should probably just give a little bit of history. This was um, we started our, our Monocle newspapers um, several summers ago because we felt that there was this period when we, we would put our July, August issue to bed. And there was this sort of six or seven weeks with that people are, you know, they're on the beach. Uh, you know, do they want do they want to sort of leave their July August copy on the Sun Lounge, or maybe you want something um, like like a newspaper? Uh, and um, and now it is it is back, obviously for you know for for many obvious reasons. Um, there was a, uh, we had to we had to put it on pause. But maybe Nolan um, set it set it up for us. A beautiful uh, uh, you know lovely col- cover, Monocle Venice Biennale Special Edition, um, developed in Zurich, edited in London, printed in Bolzano, and there we were on. Friday, um, having lunch at the Cipriani, waiting for uh, the newspaper to arrive. I got caught in um, in, in Friday afternoon, uh, pre-Pentecost weekend uh, traffic. But anyway, here it is, um, and and a bit of a thing of beauty, I have to say. It is a beautiful piece of print, Tyler. And, you know, even though we knew that the event was supposed to happen uh, on the weekend, we didn't really know it was definitely going to happen. The the Biennale really went up to the wire in terms of, of whether it would go ahead. It was It's the first major kind of art and architecture event in Europe. Um, so we basically had about two or three weeks to put this together and pull it off. Luckily, you know, there's just so much talent at this year's show and people are so invested in the event because it was postponed last year that uh, everyone was very willing to talk to us. We we were very lucky with the organizing and allowing us to go in five days early or something like that, which Julian, I think we've we've never been able to do before. I don't know if any photographer has been in that early before, but we got in there. We, we took some photographs and uh, with my colleague Nick Manise and obviously the team in London, we, we pulled this together and, you know, it's, it's, it highlights the event itself, obviously, and it's a bit of a guide to the architecture and design that you can find there, but it also tells the story of Venice. It's obviously a city that's going through an, a massive change at the moment. You know, they've banned cruise ships. It's future hopefully will uh, look brighter than its past because it's struggled in, in the years with, with over-tourism and things like that. The city's trying to reposition itself as more of a culture and events hub and obviously, you know, a tourist attraction, but not one with uh, cruise ship goers just coming in and spending very little money and kind of ruining the city. Um, so, yeah, so we've, we've produced this newspaper. It arrived on Friday evening uh, in Venice, the day before it went on to newsstands on Saturday. And luckily, even though it was later on in the evening, all the architects seemed to be at the same pub. So Nick and I had about 50 of these and we were handing them out and uh, everyone on the ground was super happy. A, a, per- a perfect approach to, 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 to fine distribution. Gillian. Well, what I love about it is that the Biennale is uh, on until November. It's like a, a five or six month event. And I think often what happens with coverage, it's so, so rich 
rich with stories and information, mm. but the coverage starts on day one and then it disappears and you can't find it. And I think the beauty of print is that this can be here for the month of May right the way through to the month of November. And there's so many layers of stories, stories that interest architects, sto uh, stories that will interest developers, stories that will interview architecture students, design people, people who are urbanists, and also just general people who are interested in our world and the built environment. And I think this teases in everything that get, that always excites me about the Venice architecture Biennale. Well, it was just uh, interesting before we uh, before we dove into this, uh, we were talking to uh, our James Chambers in Hong Kong. James, uh, just just quickly, uh, you were talking a little bit also about the outfits, the presence that the Hong Kongers really made a, uh, an effort. And you could also see that when, when you were in Venice as well. So it was, it was amazing that here we had this week where Europe came alive with a big event. Hong Kong comes alive with a big event. But I was just asking you before, uh, how did how did they manage it uh, from a yeah, a, a health uh, point of point of view because obviously you're in this Hong Kong bubble was it sort of just business as usual or what happened when you went into the fair as you said it's more it's they were it was more heavily managed uh, we don't have uh, many cases here in Hong Kong uh, but that no one's kind of dropping their guard at all uh, so it was a much uh, more kind of a, a smaller affair there were a hundred galleries in total and they were all in the same hall whereas normally it spreads over multiple halls in the convention center. Uh, so it was, a, it was a lot more enjoyable in that respect because you could just kind of wander around and enjoy all the booths instead of feeling like you needed to race through in order to, to see everything. And uh, you know, people were given uh, a time slot in which they, they could enter uh, the fair. So um, I guess they, they controlled the, the crowds uh, and that when it came to selling tickets to the public for the weekends, obviously they were, they didn't sell as many as they they would before. But uh, you know they they did sell all their tickets, and I'm sure they could have sold t ten times over. Uh, it was uh, it was a very popular. It was definitely a buzz. Um, it did feel like a uh, a, a very um, special affair. Uh, but you know it, 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 the fact that that the borders in Hong Kong are closed didn't take too much away from the fact that this is an international fair uh, and it you know it showed just how international Hong Kong really is you could see people from you know all over the world there multiple languages um, and still a lot of money uh, trading hands James, I want to pick up on on that topic in in a moment, just with Nolan, uh, because it was it was amazing to to watch, uh, you know, in Venice uh, that you had also this really all of Europe, and I think people from even further further afield uh, showing up. But um, maybe just as uh, the clock is ticking down. Uh, your point about Hong Kong, you know, not letting it, its guard down. A lot of the, the papers are, of course, filled with stories at the moment that many countries uh, in your region who thought that they, uh, of course, were, you know, and, and have also been sort of saying that, you know, they've done a great job at managing things. We also realize now it's never over till it's over. And uh, if we look to Thailand, if we look to Hong Kong, if we look across the strait to, to Taiwan, uh, suddenly we have these spike in cases um, at a time, of course, when things are improving elsewhere. But what does that mean for Hong Kong, though? And uh, does this mean that um, they're really going to be uh, keeping their thumb on things, you know, m much longer until um, they've, of course, achieved a, vac a vaccination rate, which, of course, has been going very well? Uh, but but how, how do you see it unfolding? Well, Hong Kong's in this slightly weird situation right now where in the kind of COVID-19 cycle, we're, we're in a very good place. Uh, we're getting close to the stage where we won't have had any local cases for, you know, for over, you know, a month 
Whereas the rest of Asia, as you, as you quite rightly pointed out, is, is having um, a huge spike, whether it's Thailand or, you know, or India or Malaysia and, and the Philippines and even, even Taiwan. Um, so we're in a very different place uh, to a lot of our neighbours. Uh, but the big question right now, you know, as has been the case since uh, the start, is when the, the borders with the mainland are going to open for you know, people to be able to travel to visit their factories or their families. Uh, and that discussion is very much being had right now. And there are some rumours going around in the business community that you know, an announcement could be imminent the next, next two weeks and we could be seeing travel, at least with Guangdong, which is the southern province, um, you know, kick off as early as July. So, so there is a lot of pressure coming from you know, the business community and travel and tourism just to, to start uh, things moving in, in Hong Kong. So, I mean, that's positive, but obviously it's at a time when uh, the rest of the region um, is not uh, enjoying the same uh, good fortune as Hong Kong. James, I know you'll be there to, of course, to stay across that uh, story uh, for us, our James Chambers Bureau Chief um, in Hong Kong. Uh, just uh, quickly before before we go, uh, and maybe we'll, we'll end on a festive note, both Eurovision and the Biennale. Uh, Nolan, uh, would, you, would you recommend, and this is a bit of an obvious question, would you recommend that our, our, our listeners uh, hightail it down to Venice as quickly as possible? If you can get there, you should go, because the, the crowds aren't too big, the mood is very positive, the restaurants and bars are, are there for you they're all open now and there's not so many tourists so beyond the incredible architecture and the, the biennale it's just a, an amazing time to be in venice as, as we discovered on friday and standout highlight for you of course people can read all about it in the newspaper but uh, the one thing you have to see uh, I, I really love the Danish pavilion because it's it's something that everyone can kind of understand and appreciate. It's all about, you know, this element of water and, and how valuable it is and how much we need it in our lives and what will happen if we don't have it. Uh, but the way they've kind of illustrated this is by essentially flooding their pavilion with water. It's like a stream running through it. There's a big floating platform. The curators have done a, a super smart job and it's just a beautiful place. And it's very calming in the in the manic days of getting around uh, the Biennale if you want to just sit down for a, for a cup of tea. It's uh, a good place to be. Jillian. And your douze point for the best national uh, pavilion? My douze point. Um, I, I think... Uh if I think of Venice, I really, I mean, I, maybe people would expect me to say that I love the Japanese pavilion. I thought it was outstanding at a time when everyone, you know, the theme is, of course, you know, how do how will we live together? Uh, and everyone focuses on sort of urban density and and crowds of cities, etc. What was interesting about this, the Japanese really thought about depopulation, which uh, which was amazing. And they, they took apart this house from, you know, the mid-century, which was fascinating to watch. Ben, will you be going? Well, my current travel plans are for Vienna, but I should switch that to another V, which is Venice. You do good advertisement around the table here. Very good. Uh, Fernando, they're expecting you, uh, I think, also the Brazilian pavilion as well. Yeah, and, and this year they did a tribute to Lina Bobardi, which is an iconic name uh, in Brazil, so I definitely would like to go. Excellent. Uh, Andrew Tucker, uh, just bring you in at the end of the show very, very quickly. Uh, are you? I mean, I know that there's other places that are calling, uh, but uh, maybe another island you want to go to, but Venice as well? Uh, certainly. And I, me, me and Gillian have been speaking over the, the recent weeks about maybe finding an excuse to get me down there. So let's see. Okay, well, we'll, I'm working on it, we'll, Andrew. We'll look forward to that. We're going to have to leave it there. Ben Ozog, Gillian Tobias, Andrew Tuck, Emma Nelson, uh, and our, also Fernando Gusto Pacheco and James Chambers. Thanks very much. Our show is produced by Emma Nelson and Marcus Sippy, studio managers Desiree Benley and Steph Chungu. I'm Tyler Brule in Zurich. We'll be back next weekend. Have a very lovely Sunday. Goodbye. <laughs>